Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance. My name's Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here. And tonight, we're going to be studying the Bible out of a passage in the book of John. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can look underneath the seat around you where there's a hardback black Bible. You can turn to page 902 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you because you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible with you so you can have a copy of your own. But we'll be starting on page 902 in that Bible. We'll also put the words up on the screen for you. But before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about what the book of John is. So the book of John is one of four biographies of Jesus's life, the other three being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them gospels, which means a message about the good news of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis or a general survey of the life and the activities of Jesus. And John is a little bit different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in that it was written many years later and not so much giving an overview of all of his activities. It gives more of an understanding of his teachings. Not that it doesn't talk about his life and his activities. In fact, more of Jesus's miracles are recorded in the gospel of John than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one story that's common to all four of these books is Jesus's last night on earth. He sits down at a table with some of his closest friends in this room, and he has a meal with them. We call it the Last Supper. And his closest friends there, we call them the 12 disciples. He shares with them that tonight I'm going to be arrested. Tomorrow I'm going to be executed. And as he's explaining this to them, reminding them that he's been telling them this for the past three years, that one day this would come. One of his disciples, Judas, speaks up and he's like, guys, oh no, I forgot the sour cream. I'm going to run and grab the sour cream real quick and I'll bring it back. And while he's gone, he's actually betraying Jesus to the authorities. So later, while Jesus is in a garden praying, Judas brings a mob of soldiers to arrest Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us three or four paragraphs telling this story. The book of John gives us five chapters telling this story. What John does is he pauses, he slows down, and he takes a moment to focus on the things that Jesus was saying in his final moments on earth. Imagine if you knew this was going to be your last night on earth. If you knew it was, wouldn't you gather your closest friends and family and tell them all the things that are on your heart? Tell them all the things that you want them to know before you leave this earth? This is what Jesus is doing, giving his last words to his closest friends. 
Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples for a moment. They've followed Jesus for three years. They've seen him do many miracles. They've, they've, seen, him, they've seen him heal people. They've seen him be kind to people everywhere he went, do many good things. They've heard his teachings. Everything Jesus did, they saw. They were with him every waking moment. They were kind of losers before they met Jesus, actually. There was not a whole lot about them that was attractive to other people. Some of them were tax collectors. Some of them were rebels. Most of them were uneducated. So there was really nothing about their lives until they met Jesus. And he gave them a purpose. He chose them and said, I'm going to use you guys, who some of whom, to be quite frank, are lowlifes. And I'm going to use you to help bring God's kingdom into this world. And so this man who'd given them a purpose, the one that they'd spent every moment with for the past three years, they're about to lose him. And they're fearful. They're sorrowful. And Jesus says to them, guys, listen, it's actually actually not a bad thing that I'm going away because when I'm executed, I'm going to be returning to my father. I'm going to be returning to God. That's all cool. And it's actually better for you if I go away and they're stunned and they're speechless. And Jesus tries to encourage them with these words in John 16, verse five, he says, now I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going to the father. And none of you asks me, where are you going? You're speechless. You can't even bring yourself to ask me where I'm going. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage. It's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send the helper to you. And when the helper comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to convict the world concerning sin because they don't believe in me. He's going to convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. He'll convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, the helper, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus, when he refers to the helper, In this passage, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And that's who we're going to talk about tonight is God's Holy Spirit. But before we do that, I want to take a moment and pause and pray and ask God to help us understand as we always do. Would you pray with me, Lord? We're so thankful for the Holy Spirit. We're so thankful that you sent your son Jesus to rescue us from our sin, and we're so thankful that you promised to come and dwell with us through your Holy Spirit and that you gave us that free gift through what Jesus purchased for us. Lord, I pray tonight as we, as we learn a little bit about him that you would help us to understand the necessity of his role in our lives, how much we need him to help us, how much we need this helper. Help us, Lord, to understand and to see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I mentioned that 
These 12 disciples were kind of lowlifes and losers. They really had nothing going for them until they meet Jesus. And now everything that they had going for them, the purpose, their livelihood, their entire identity that had all been wrapped up in Jesus is about to be stripped away from them. He had taken them this far. He had brought them this far in life, and now they're about to lose him. And they're overcome with sorrow at the thought of it. Could you imagine if on Tuesday night, after we'd taken the vote to move forward with the construction of the buildings, that Pastor Jeff would have come up on stage and said, congratulations, everyone. It was a unanimous yes to move forward. Everyone cheers. Woo, that's great. And he goes, and I'd also like to announce that this is my last day of working here at Renaissance. We would all have said, what is wrong with you? Why didn't you tell us that before we voted? We need you to go forward. You can't do that to us. This is where the disciples are at. Jesus, we need you. Three years with you is not enough. We need you in our lives. We need you to show us what to do. We need you to show us how to live. We need you to show us where to go. Jesus, we saw you do miracles. We saw you raise a guy from the dead. We saw you heal blind eyes. We saw you take a five-buck lunch and feed 5,000 people. Jesus, you can beat any of these guys who are coming to arrest you. We got a couple swords here ourselves. We'll fight for you, Jesus. It doesn't have to go down like this. And he says, guys, you don't understand. You don't get it. It's better for you if I go away. Verse 7, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This word advantage, the English doesn't do its actual meaning justice. It carries with it the idea of people being gathered together in a group and being able to carry a heavy burden together, being able to collect themselves and have it all together in a moment where things are just too difficult for them to do so. Jesus says, you're going to be able to be so cool and collected and have it all together when you never imagined you'd be able to. If we read just a few chapters on, we'll learn that when Jesus is arrested, all of these men scatter. In fact, one of them, Peter, who while they came to arrest him, pulled out a sword and chopped off a guy's ear, when a little girl approaches him and says, hey, mister, weren't you one of those guys who followed Jesus around? He cusses her out and says, no. They all scatter. How is it the moments before Jesus says, guys, you're going to be so collected. You're going to have it all together. You're going to be able to handle anything that comes your way. Well, it's only because he's going to send the helper to them. They have to have this help from an outside source before they'd be able to hold it all together. If I don't go away, verse 7, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will Send him to you. Who is this helper that he's talking about? This helper is the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Oh, you might ask that question then. Okay, well, who's the Holy Spirit? And I'm so glad you asked that question. The Holy Spirit. I want to take a few moments and talk about him. So if you don't mind, we're going to get just a little theological for a moment. Is that okay? Okay, okay. So the Holy Spirit. Last week, Pastor Jeff mentioned this thing called systematic theology. And what that is, is taking multiple truths from the Bible and placing them in a category to help us understand specific things about a certain topic. For example, we don't, we don't have a passage in the Bible or a book in the Bible that gives us details 
about the Holy Spirit. It doesn't tell us everything about him in one place. But what we can do is take different parts of the Bible, different ways that God has revealed himself in the Bible. We can place them in a category and say, this is what we understand, and this is what we know about who the Holy Spirit is. That is what systematic theology is. And so we have a systematic theology of the Holy Spirit. And it begins with this truth. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, some of you might be thinking this. Now, wait a minute. I thought the Father was God. And every week you remind us that Jesus is, in fact, God. What's this with the Holy Spirit being God as well? Well, guess what? That is something that Christians for two millennia have felt mystery about. How is it that God can be one being and yet reveal himself as three persons, theologians would say? How is this possible? Let's all look at our hand. Not everybody's doing it. It's fine. I don't listen either. (laughs) It's cool. But my hand is made up of a palm, four fingers, and a thumb. If I were to say, I'm going to raise my hand, I would not say, I'm going to raise my palm, four fingers, and my thumb. (laughs) I would just say, I'm going to raise my hand because those three parts make up my one hand. My hand is one hand, but it's made up of three parts, a palm, four fingers, and a thumb. God is similar to this. He's one God, but he's made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that if we could adequately describe him with words and parallels, we're probably not describing the true God because his his nature is so limitless and infinite. It will take eternity for us to understand who he truly is. And so we come up with these feeble analogies to try to understand his nature and try to wrap our minds around the idea that God is one and three at the same time. The Holy Spirit is God. So when Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper to you, what he's saying is, I'm going to send God to you. You think you're going to miss out on some divine presence because I'm leaving, but in fact, you're not. I'm going to send divine presence presence to you, the Holy Spirit. He's God. Jesus gives him a name here. He calls him the helper. The helper. This word has been translated many different ways in the English. It's been translated helper. It's been translated advocate. Maybe you've heard the word translated comforter. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. None of these words adequately describe what is wrapped up in the meaning of that original word. The idea of of the Holy Spirit as the helper is one who literally comes alongside of us, wraps his arm around us, goes with us everywhere we go, does everything we do, never leaves us, and is continually encouraging us, whispering in our ear, you can do it, you can make it, you can go through this. That's who the Holy Spirit is. That's what it means when it says he's the helper. He comes alongside of us to lead us and guide us. And Jesus says, it's better for you if I go away because you're going to have that everywhere you go. He goes on to say that when he comes, he's going to have a role in your lives and he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. I always imagined that the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that when the Holy Spirit would come to me and convict me of my sin, 
would sound something like this. Wow, Joe, you blew it again. Great job, you dummy, you garbage person, you loser. Can't ever get anything right, can you? And maybe you felt the same way. Maybe, maybe that's some of the self-talk going on in your head whenever you fail. And you imagine that that's the voice of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus tells us what it means that the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin. He says, he'll convict them concerning sin because they do not believe in me. When I sin and the Holy Spirit comes to convict me of that, he's not saying, you're such an idiot I knew you'd do it again. You knew you'd do it again. Everybody else knew you'd do it again. He's coming along and he's actually saying this. Don't you remember that Jesus died for that sin? Don't you remember that Jesus laid down his life for you? Don't you remember that his blood washes us clean from our sins? Don't you remember who you are, that you're no longer a sinner, but God has actually made you holy and righteous through what Jesus has done? When I sin, it's not that I need someone to come and beat me on the side of the head to remind me that I'm an idiot. I know that well enough myself. What I need to be reminded of is who I am and what Jesus has done. What happens when I sin is that I've just stopped believing that Jesus is Lord. And I've started believing that I'm the Lord. I can do anything I want. The Holy Spirit comes along and says, remember, you're not in charge here. Remember who's in control. Remember that Jesus is Lord. Verse 10, he says, I'm gonna con he'll, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. When he says, I'm going to go to the Father, what he's referring to is the idea of standing before God and presenting himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. When Jesus died, when he was nailed to the cross, when he was hoisted up to hang naked on the cross before everyone who would pass by and see, that act was in fact a sacrifice for our sin. All of our sins, all of our failures, all of our faults, all of God's wrath was placed on Jesus in that moment. And when he died, he washed it all away sacrificing himself for us. So he says, I'm going to go to the Father and the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I'm going to stand before the Father and say, I've sacrificed myself for their unrighteousness. And so when he comes to us, he doesn't say, you need to learn how to get it right. You need to learn how to be righteous. He says, remember that Jesus, the righteous one, laid down his life for you. And because he did that, we can look to him in hope and faith and understand that he's given us a new nature and feel compelled to live righteously. Not because he's prodding us and poking at us and say, oh, you're doing it wrong again. Oh, you're failing again. Oh, you're messing up again. He continually points us to Jesus who stands before the father and says, you can't punish them because you've already punished me. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to make them better. We're just going to help them follow me. That's what it means when he's going to convict the world concerning righteousness. Verse 11, he says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus is speaking of the ruler of this world here. He's actually referring to Satan, who the Bible calls the ruler of this world a couple different places. 
Satan, the devil, the evil one, the one that is opposed to us, the one the Bible calls the enemy of our souls. The word Satan actually means accuser. He's the one who accuses God's people. He accuses God's children day and night, and he comes to us, and he's the one who says, wow, you failed again, didn't you? Oh, look, I knew you couldn't do it. You knew you couldn't do it. He's that voice that tells us we couldn't make it. When Jesus says the ruler of this world is judged, what he's saying is when I'm taken from you, when I'm executed, when I'm crucified tomorrow, I'm going to rob the ruler of this world, Satan, of all of his power. He loses. He has no power over us other than what we give him. And the only power we can give him is when we believe the lies that he speaks to us. When I believe that I'm never going to do it right, when I believe that I can't follow God as much as I want to, when I believe that I'll never be as righteous as Jesus, when I believe those things that the enemy would lie to me about, that's when I give him power. That's the only power he has is what he can lie to us about and convince us. The Bible in the book of Peter He's writing to a group of his friends. He says, the devil is out there walking around like a roaring lion. And he's looking for someone to devour, like an apex predator prowling the Serengeti, looking for some hapless prey to jump on. Interesting to note that Peter says, the devil is like a lion. Elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that Jesus is called the lion. So the devil is just walking around as some imposter, trying to appear as though he's as powerful as Jesus is, trying to make us think he's as strong as Jesus is, and he lies to us, and he makes us believe what he says. The whole time, Jesus is like, I've already beaten him. Just believe me. That's the role of the Holy Spirit to come along and combat the lies of Satan to combat them if we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit more than the voice of Satan, he can have no power over us. I've grown up in the church almost all my life. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people pray, Lord, bind Satan, tie him up. And a week later, same person praying, Lord, bind Satan, tie him up. And I'm wondering, who's praying for Satan to be loosed? Who's praying for Satan to be untied? Who keeps letting him go if God keeps binding it? <laughs> the reality is we don't have to pray for Satan to be bound because he's already beaten. He's weak. He's weak. Jesus is more powerful and he defeated him. There's nothing he can do to destroy us. There's nothing he can do. Every time we see in the Bible him wanting to approach one of God's people and harm them, do you know what he has to do? He has to get permission. He's weak. God is ruling over all. And Jesus has beaten the devil. So the, the excuse that we make when we fail, that the devil made me do it, is not true. 
I'm, I'm bad enough on my own. Thank you very much. I don't need the devil's help. He can't make us do anything. He's been judged, and his judgment is that we are victorious over him because of our faith in Jesus. He has nothing to hold against us. He can't accuse us anymore before God because Jesus has stood before the Father as a perfect sacrifice. He can't accuse us anymore because we believe in the one who laid down his life for our sins. He has no power over us whatsoever. He says in verse 12, Jesus does, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Guys, listen, I don't have time to tell you everything I want to tell you tonight. And your minds are already blown as it is. Could you imagine if I were to tell you more? You can't even handle what I've told you up to this point. You can't bear what I want to tell you now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus is saying to them, listen, guys, the Holy Spirit's going to be able to tell you things that I can't. The Holy Spirit can tell us things that Jesus can't. And why is that? Because Jesus could only be with one person at a time. He could only be with James, or he could only be with John, or he could be with them in a group. But if they were to be separate, he could only be with one of them at a time. But the Holy Spirit could be with all of them at the same time. Many times I've said this, and maybe you've said it as well, but, but this phrase, Jesus is in my heart. I'm going to gently say as kindly as I can, that's just not true. Jesus is not in my heart. And, and here's why. Jesus is in a physical body. When he was raised from the dead, he walked out of the grave in a real body, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God in a real physical body. It's impossible for him to live inside me. And if you've got this like compact person like stuck inside of you, you've got bigger issues than theological problems. <laughs> Jesus does not live in our hearts. The Holy Spirit does. God's spirit does. So when we place our faith in Jesus, it's his spirit that comes to live inside of us. Jesus is on the throne. The Holy Spirit is in our hearts. And Jesus says, this is why it's necessary for me to go away. I can't do for you what the Holy Spirit is going to be able to do for you. I can't help you live for me the way the Holy Spirit is going to help you live for me. Because I can only be in one place at one time. It's actually better for us that we have this inward voice guiding us and leading us. Could you imagine how embarrassing it would be to have a person standing alongside of you everywhere you go? And every time you have an ungodly thought or an idea that comes to your mind and you're about to do something sinful, to have that person speak up, no, Joe, don't do that sin for everyone to hear? How embarrassing. But how wonderful it is to have this in, inner guiding voice of the Holy Spirit to lead us gently in ways that maybe we don't understand. I'm going to share a personal story with you. A week ago or so, I was having coffee with a friend at the coffee shop just north of here. And when we were done, I came out to my car where I saw a little ticket on the windshield. You know when your license plates are expired and <laughs> you're like, man, I don't want to go to the DMV to renew them because it's such a hassle and a pain. And before you know it, you know, six months go by, whatever. 
Well, anyway, just to help you, just to give you some real practical help, if you have expired plates, it's a $50 ticket if you park downtown, okay? So I see this $50 ticket, oh no, but, but along with the $50 ticket, there's also a boot on my car. I know. So not only is it gonna be $50 to take care of this ticket, it's also $35 to have the boot removed because you gotta pay them for everything, I guess. And so I'm like, okay, whatever. $85, it's frustrating, but small price to pay for the mistake that I have made. So I'll walk over to the Civic Center. I'll pay this fine. Everything will be okay. And by the time I'd gotten over to the Civic Center and walked through the front doors, the idea that the city actually owns the streets that my sales tax pays for began to fill me with a fury and a rage that I'd never experienced before. I was blinded by wrath. I wouldn't have recognized my mom if I'd seen her. And I, I march up the stairs to the clerk's window where she's gonna be my scapegoat. I'm gonna let her have it. It's all gonna be her fault. Somebody's gotta pay for the pain that I'm going through, right? And I put it down and I'm about to yell at her and something, someone says to me, Joe, why don't you just stand down, bro? <laughs> okay. So I take the ticket out and I hand it to her. She's very kind. And I said, I'd like to pay this and have the boot removed from my car immediately. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay, um, just one moment. She turns around and grabs two pieces of paper that were behind her to inform me that I apparently had two parking tickets from 2016 that had gone unpaid. And now my $85 has turned into $475. Oh, I know! <laughs> And so now there are like flames flaming on the side of my face. I'm ready to call fire down from heaven onto the Civic Center. I run through the scenario in my mind like they're going to they're gonna have to get security involved in this. They're going to have to bring someone here to drag me out because this is an injustice. It's none of the state's business what kind of car I drive. These are my city streets because my sales tax pays for it. And I'm about to let her have it. And then something, someone says, Joe, don't you remember Jesus said, love your neighbor? <laughs> don't you remember Jesus said you should do to others what you want them to do to you? Don't you remember that Jesus went around doing good to everyone that he met? Just pay the fine. This is not her fault, Joe. Joe, this is actually your fault. <laughs> pay the fine and move along. So I pay the fine, get my plates renewed, come to church next Sunday, a day in which I was preaching, and I run into that lady here at church. She actually comes to Renaissance. <laughs> Can you imagine? She goes home to tell a story. You'll never believe one of the pastors at my church ripped me a new one. Can you, can you imagine the damage that I could have done? Could you imagine what could have happened? Could you imagine what could have happened to her? 
I don't know much about her story. What if she's a new believer? What if she's not a believer? I don't know. What, what could I have done? What kind of damage could I have done? What kind of harm could I have caused were it not for the helper? I didn't want to be kind. The Holy Spirit told me to. He helped me in that moment. If you turn left one page to John chapter 14, verse 15, this same teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples, he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Makes it pretty cut and dry there. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And even simplifies it for us. The Bible tells us that his commandments are actually not that grievous. They're not that difficult. They're not that heavy of a burden for us to bear. And Jesus simplifies his commandments into two. He says, you just love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do those things. I just... God done telling you how I apparently didn't love Jesus enough to, to just do those things on my own. I was about to snap before the helper came to help me. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And guess what? He knows that we can't keep his commandments. He knows that we can't love him enough. So verse 16, he says, I'll just ask the father and he'll give you a helper. He'll give you someone to come and help you to be with you forever. I'm about to leave you. The Holy Spirit never going to leave you. He's the spirit of truth. The world can't receive him because it doesn't see him. It doesn't know him, but you know him because he dwells with you. He's been with you for three and a half years, guys, because he's in me. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, so they were familiar with him. They already knew the Holy Spirit because he'd been with them for these three years. Jesus says he dwells with you and you know him already, but guess what? He's about to be in you. This is what the helper does. He comes and he dwells inside of us to lead us and to guide us to direct us, to correct us, to remind us of who Jesus is, to remind us of who we are, to help us love Jesus so that we can keep those commandments. Love God, love others. A couple days ago, Jack, our youth director, and I were sitting in our workspace and he says to me, Joe, I'm having a little bit of trouble finding this particular thing in the Bible. Can you, can you help me? Do you know where this is at? And I, I said, I, yeah, I think it's in this place. He's like, well, I'm already there and it's not there. I said, well, why don't you try this? And he goes, okay, he flips there. And he's like, it's not there either. So we spend like 10, 15 minutes racking our brains over where this particular story is in the Bible. And we're feeling a little bit ashamed about it. Like we should know this stuff. We know it's in there. And eventually I'm like, you know what, Jack, if only there was a database of information at my fingertips accessible to me at any time that could tell me anything I wanted anytime I asked. If only I had that. And Jack says, you know what? Forget it. I'll just Google it. <laughs> but we waste 10, 15 minutes before we get to that point. I'll just Google it. Not, and, and it's not like we, we'd forgotten that the internet was there. It's not like we'd forgotten that that 
that helpful thing was before us the entire time. It's not like we'd forgotten that we could access the information. We just wanted to do it ourselves. We just wanted to see if we could do it ourselves. So we waste time neglecting this incredibly helpful resource that's just right there because we wanted to say we did it ourselves. I can't tell you how often I have neglected the wonderful resource of the helper, the Holy Spirit, because I wanted to be able to say I did it myself. I would love to be able to tell you that I got that ticket on my car and gleefully walked up and said, gee, I sure am sorry. I've done this misjustice. I'd love to pay for that. That is not how it turned out. The helper had to stop me. I can't do it myself. You can't do it yourself. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need him. This is why Jesus says, I've got to go away, guys. I've got to go away. You all need help. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. The band is going to return in a few moments. And when they do, they're going to sing a song called Have It All. And the words go like this. You can have it all, Lord. You can have it all. And when we sing that tonight, I I want us to think of that phrase, you can have it all, Lord, in this way, as though we're saying to God, you can have all of me as a container of your Holy Spirit. You can fill all of me with your Holy Spirit. This is what he wants us to do. When we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. But as we make ourselves more available to his influence, he in fact fills us. And his desire is that every area of our lives would just be crammed with his Holy Spirit. So when we sing that tonight, you can have it all, Lord. Say it in in your mind like this to Jesus. You can have all of me to be filled with your Holy Spirit. You can take all of me. You can come into every area of my life and you can fill every part of me. You can influence every part of me. You can take everywhere I go and you can rule there. You can take everything I do and you can lead in that moment. You can have it all. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit. We don't know what we would do without him. We need him. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for ways we've neglected him. Pray that you would forgive me for ways in which I've believed I could do it on my own without his help. I pray that you would continually correct me in that, continually remind me of my need for his help in my life. I pray that as we sing to you tonight, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. This gift that you have given to us freely, we would experience his leading in every way, in ways that we could never imagine. We thank you, Lord, that that's available to us. 
We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you all to stand at this time if you're able to. And if you want someone to pray with you, you can go out those back doors and turn to the right. And in the hallway we call the gallery, there will be a couple people stationed out there to pray with you if you want someone to pray with you. Otherwise, we're so glad that you have come and we hope we can see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.